0: Father God, we thank you for today. I thank you for what you've got in store for us, and I pray that you would guide this conversation. Have your way with us, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. All right, if you have got a Bible, go ahead and grab it with me. Um, And as before, I start. We're going to be in Joshua, so it's it's towards the beginning of the Bible. You've got the, the Pentateuch, the, you know, Galatians, right. Wow, we're starting on a high note, right? So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you come to Joshua. So that's where we're going to be camped. If you find yourself in Psalms, which is in the middle, hook a left. Um, so three weeks ago, we as a church made a pretty sizable transition in, in Lee, Announcing his resignation and you guys voting to have me become the lead pastor and I got to tell you that the months leading up to that As well as these last several weeks have been a whirlwind of emotion on the one hand It's been ridiculously exciting as as not only we prepared for this and there was a the unanimous vote Which makes it wonderful because I don't have to wonder who doesn't want me, you know That is a a wonderfully liberating feeling Um, But also, as we have begun this interview process for associate pastors, I'm looking for a spiritual formation pastor who will come in and be able to wrap his arms around um, our growth and so forth and be a partner to me. And those interviews have been wonderfully exciting as I've had a chance to meet some amazing people. And I am excited for who God is bringing here, whoever that might be. Um, I'm also... Truly, I've, I've seen God begin to orchestrate some things here, and I'm just excited for what he has in store for us. I don't know everything that is, but I'm excited to see it. So there's excitement on one hand, and on the other hand, there's been a healthy dose of fear, right? Because these are some pretty big little shoes that I'm filling. Um, he's, not, he's not here, you're right. That was I'll tell him to his face, he's got little feet. Um, but but there's, there is a, a weight to this and there are moments where I'm just going, my goodness, God, am I ready? You know, this is a big deal. The weight is heavy, and and transition by its very nature is scary, right? Because it basically means that you have to let go of all of your habits, all of your rhythms that you have established, all of the comfort that you've accumulated over the time of just becoming familiar with the regular pace. And all of a sudden, when transition happens, those things get put by the wayside. And it's no wonder, then, that a lot of us really wrestle against and push against change. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Darlene. I appreciate that. The, the sad thing is, all of them in the front row are not old enough to even know what you're referencing right now. But I get you. I'm there with you. <coughs> wow, I love Darlene. I, I was I was planning on speaking. I have no idea where I was going today. I am like, look, a shiny object. No, so so transitions uncomfortable. And we've seen how some people really push against transition, haven't we? I mean, we just finished what, working through the book of Galatians, and in that book. Paul was having to address a people, these Jewish Christians, who were having, struggling with a change. Yes, they believed that Jesus died for them. They believed that God was doing something new through the grace that he was pouring out through the cross. However, they had a hard time embracing grace alone. They could not let go of the law as the kind of foundation for their relationship. And so they struggled with embracing grace. And for those of us who have graduated, whether it's from high school or from college, and we went on to get a full-time job, we understand both the the thrill as well as the the, the weight of that transition. I mean, it's wonderful to go, I don't have tests that I have to work on. And and then you get that first paycheck, and it's like the the top of the world because it seems like so much. And then one day you wake up and you realize, summer vacation's not coming, like, (laughs) You may get a couple of weeks that first year, but nobody gets two and a half months anymore. Unless, of course, you go back and be a teacher, which, yes, I see your hands. We're all jealous. And we appreciate the investment you make in our children. So, yes, if you're a teacher, you get a little bit more of a break. But transition is hard because, again, you have to let go of your regular rhythms, let go of the habits you've established, let go of the comfortable to take hold of the new, which is good and it's healthy. My wife and I experienced this when we first brought Ethan home, right? We had been anticipating and planning to be parents for far longer than the nine and a half months that Kathy had been pregnant. We'd prepared our hearts. We'd prepared our home. We thought we were ready. And then all of a sudden, he's there. And what we were not prepared for was how much the rhythms of our lives would be sacrificed on the altar of being parents and figuring this out. Because up to that point... Personally, I could tell you, I was spending like half an hour or more each morning in quiet contemplation with God, and it was wonderful. And now all of a sudden, I've got this kid who's waking us up four or five times a night. We are struggling just to get enough sleep, and all of our regular rhythms were thrown off. And so change is normal, but it changes everything. And some of us really gravitate towards change, right? Some of us are comfortable with it. We love transition because it brings newness, it brings freshness, it brings excitement. But many of us are afraid of change because it means that we have to let go of things that we hold dear. And because we don't know what the path ahead you know, holds, we know what was behind, we don't know what, the, what lies ahead, and so we have a hard time letting go of it. And the reality is our church is going through change right now. And even though we have prepared for quite a while for it, we don't know exactly what the path ahead looks like. And so as we were talking about where are we going to go after we finish Galatians, one of the things that became evident is we need to spend some time talking about the transition that's taking place. And we need to spend some time exploring what is the posture that we can take into this journey that we find ourselves on, not only here at the church, but any change. And so we said, well, let's spend some time looking at others throughout Scripture who have had to walk through change. Let's see w- w- what we can learn from their lives, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. But rather than spending time in passages and stories that we all know really well, because there's a lot that we find ourselves camping in, we decided let's go to some places that we don't typically go to, places where you may have never heard a sermon out of. So we're going to find ourselves in the middle of, of scripture, in, in places like Joshua and judges and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles—places that you probably were at this morning doing your devotional, right? Right. And we're just going to ask the question: What did they do in the midst of transition? What did they? What did they learn through, and what can we learn through this? So we're in Joshua, but this morning before we dive into Joshua chapter one, um, something we tried on Easter morning that really helped—at least for me grab my you know kind of wrap my arms around something was I want to do a little storytelling I want us to get into the mindset of what must have been going on for this guy Joshua who was suddenly thrust into the lead position in Israel he was entrusted with the leadership of an entire people group as they're wandering through the wilderness before they go into the promised land because Moses says hey I'm not going to make it into the promised land I'm dying you now are in charge so I'm going to just tell you a story. I'm going to give you some backstory on this guy, Joshua, before we start reading about his life. So picture this. Joshua is 60 years older around there. And he's sitting in front of the tent of meeting. This is the very center of the Jewish camp. What would happen is the tent of meeting was the place that the Jewish leaders would go to meet with God. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And so whenever the Jews would be led by God to a new place, they would let the Ark of the Covenant lead them. And when they got there, the Ark would be set down, the Tent of Meeting would be set up, and then all 12 of the tribes would pitch their tents around the Tent of Meeting. It was the epicenter of the Jewish world at that time. And here's Joshua, 61-62, looking out over the sea of, of faces, some of whom he knows, many of them are complete strangers to him. Men, women, children, entire families whose lives and well-being is dependent upon the choices that he will make as their leader. And this the weight of that responsibility is very, very fresh for him. It's just a few weeks led them to the edge of the Red Sea. And as, as the Egyptian army because Pharaoh had changed his mind and did not want to let his people go. As he sees this Egyptian army bearing down, he watched as God led Moses to strike the waters and the Red Sea parted. And the Israelites were able to walk through on dry ground to the other side of the sea. And then, as this army tries to pursue them, God brings this water crashing back down upon them, decimating an army without Israel having to lift a finger. He'd watched as God provided for the people in the wilderness manna in the morning and manna just means what is it literally there's like this is bread what is it i don't know but let's eat it it looks good and so he's filled his belly with manna he's eaten quail that would flock into the camp each night he's drank the water that poured out of previously barren rock he's seen god provide for his people and yet Joshua has also seen the fickle nature of this people that he's been asked to lead. He's watched as when they, the same people who had seen all the same miracles that he had seen when they got out into the wilderness and when their stomachs began to grumble, they began to grumble at God and at Moses, his representative. Moses, why did you bring us out into the wilderness so that we would die of starvation? Wouldn't it have been better to leave us back there in Egypt? Man, back where we used to sit around pots of meat and have all that we wanted, he's seen the way that the people began to romanticize slavery because their trust in God is eclipsed by their hunger in their stomachs. And so Joshua looks out upon this sea of tents. Amen. And he looks beyond that sea of tents to the Jordan River that flows. And beyond that river to the land of Canaan, a land that God had promised to Abraham centuries before to give to his people, the Israelites. It's the the place that the people had begun to refer to as the promised land. Now, this wasn't the first time that Joshua and the Israelites found themselves camped here. Almost 40 years before, God had led Moses and the people to almost this exact spot overlooking the river and overlooking the land that God promised to give him. And God had told Moses, get the people ready, because I'm going to send you into the land to take ownership of it. And so in preparation, Moses had chosen 12 spies, one from each of the tribes, to go in and scout the land. And Joshua, who at the time was just maybe a 20-year-old kid, had been one of those chosen he had been one who had gone in and seen just how rich and wonderful this land that God was giving him really was. It was a land with deep, fertile valleys where sheep and goats grazed and grew fat. It was a land with hillsides full of vineyards and olive orchards. And in forests, there were honeycomb that oozed honey because the wild bees were constantly making it and there was nobody to collect it. Truly, this was a land flowing with milk and honey. And both Joshua and Caleb, two of these spies, were excited about that. However, this land was not vacant. It was occupied by a lot of very large city-states. And they, like the land in which they occupied, were strong and powerful. And the other spies couldn't see how good the land was. All they could see was how powerful the nations arrayed against them were. And they were scared. And so when these spies came back, Joshua and Caleb found themselves going, it's good, we got to go. And the other ten said, no, because there's giants in the land. And we can't do it. We're not powerful enough. And, he, and their report poisoned the perspective of the rest of the people. And they rebelled against Moses and they rebelled against God and said, no, we don't trust God enough to give us what he said he wants to give us. And they paid for it because for the last 40 years, the people of God have wandered in circles just east of the promised land. And slowly but surely, that entire generation of doubters has died off. Even Moses has died off, leaving only Joshua and Caleb from the previous generation. The only two that trusted God are the only two leaders that are still alive. And now God has brought them back to this same spot and said, it's time to go. And so Joshua sits just outside the tent of meeting, his heart full of of a mix of excitement and fear. Excitement because finally, after 40 years, we're back. Finally, after 40 years, we get to go in and take hold of what God has been wanting to give us for over 400 years. But his excitement is tinged with fear. Because there are the same obstacles that the previous generation had encountered. The same powerful nations still occupy the land. And the people that he's been tasked with leading are the same fickle kind of people that their parents had been. And if they hadn't listened to Moses, what's to say that they would listen to him? Because he's not Moses. And so that fear, those feelings of inadequacy, the the questions of God, am I good enough? Have I got what it takes? Am I a good enough leader? Am I a good enough military commander to lead these people in and take hold of this land and to, to push out these pagan nations begins to well up. And as it does, Joshua stands up and walks into the tent of meeting, up to the Ark of the Covenant, and he falls down on his knees and he begins to pray, God, I need you so badly. I need you to show up because I don't feel adequate. God, these are your people. You've entrusted the leadership to me, but I need you to show me what to do. Show me how to go. Show me how to lead, and I will do so. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly how Joshua felt. I'm not sure if those are the things that he prayed because that's not recorded in Scripture. But what is recorded in Joshua chapter 1 is what God said to him. So if you're there, hopefully with me, let's begin reading in verse 2. This is what God said to Joshua at the outset of his leadership of the people. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, just as I promised to Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert up to the the, the hills of Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, and all the Hittite country in the middle, all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will also be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, never turn my back upon you. So be strong and courageous, Joshua, because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Now, in case Joshua didn't get it the first time, God repeats himself. He says, be strong and very courageous. It's important for us to recognize when God begins to repeat things, that's a time to pay attention. Right? If, you, if you've ever been reading through Scripture, and you get to a place where it says, "Like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the repetition of that word is kind of like highlighting it and, and, and putting italics on it. It's like, pay attention. So now here God says, be strong and courageous. You're going to lead my people, and I'm going to be with you. And then he repeats it. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law, the, the law that God had handed down to Mount, on Mount Sinai, the law that helped explain what it looked like to live as the people of God, his representatives in the land. Keep that book of the law next to you, close to you. Study it, meditate upon it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then... You will be prosperous and successful. I want you to notice that God does not guarantee their success. What he says is, if you rest in me, if you submit to my leadership, if you allow this guidebook that I've entrusted to you to be your guide, but also you allow me to ultimately be your guide, then you will be successful and prosperous. But apart from me, if you try to do this on your own, good luck. Verse 9 because he hasn't said it enough, God is going to say it one more time. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Why? Why, God? Why should I be strong and courageous? Why shouldn't I fear? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I'm not just giving you this book of the law. I will go with you. I'm not just giving you a topographical map of the land you're going into or some driving instructions and saying, hey, good luck. Don't get lost because if you get off the map, you're, gonna, you're on your own. No, I've given you this, but I'm also walking with you and I will guide you step by step by step. I will show you where to go. I will show you what to do. I will give you wisdom when you don't have it. You know, I, this, this passage spoke really powerful to, powerfully to me a few weeks ago when we were getting ready for our Easter service. We did that 24 hours of prayer. And we had set up the Faith Cafe across the street as a time to just sit for an hour with God. And I know many of you participated in that. I ended up um, having a time early morning on Saturday. And I found myself in there alone. And I did something that I've been trying to do more lately, and that is rather than just sit there and give my laundry list of needs to God, I tried to sit in silence and stillness and listen. And as I did so, some of my own insecurities began to well up, feelings similar to perhaps what Joshua felt as he sat there looking out over the camp of people and the responsibilities that he was inheriting. Feelings of God, am I enough? Am I the right man to lead this church? Am I mature enough? Am I wise enough? Am I ready? And as I was sitting there, I, I, I glanced up at the TV screen that had different passages and, and prayer ideas kind of slowly going through. And it was this passage that jumped out at me. As if God was highlighting it and saying, this one's for you. Pay attention. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am with you. Because by yourself, Eric, and and whenever God speaks to me, it kind of feels like a zip file where God says just a couple of words, but then you open it up and it's just full of meaning and you know, because you know what it means. And it was as if he was saying to me, listen, you're not replacing Lee. Nobody can do that. He is him, but I've made you to be you. And I'm not asking you to do what he did. I'm asking you to do what I have entrusted to you and to follow me. Because at the end of the day, Lee was an interim pastor and you will be an interim pastor. But I am the Lord of this church. I am the leader and the shepherd of Lighthouse Community Church and every other church that meets throughout this world. So you just follow my lead and I will guide you and I will direct you you're not enough by yourself, but I will make you enough. And I will bring people around to support you, to do what I'm calling you to do. So be strong and courageous. But, but what about the things like we don't know what's coming up? Yeah, you don't, but I do. I got you. And so Joshua hears God tell him, be strong and courageous because I am with you. I will lead you. And so he stands up. And he walks out of the tent of meeting and he gathers the leaders of his people, the leaders of each tribe, and he says, prepare the people because in three days' time we are going to cross the Jordan River and we are going to take the land that God has promised to give us. The book of Joshua is 24 chapters long and there's no way that we can adequately wrap our arms around it. However, what I want to do today, because there's other passages and other stories that i want us to be able to to lean into in the coming weeks i'm going to try to do my best to summarize what happens in just a few minutes if there's one thing that i have seen as i've been studying through the book of joshua this last couple of months is that joshua was a man who was willing to be obedient to god even if it meant that he might look foolish to the people that he was leading and that's important He was willing to be obedient even if it made him potentially look foolish. Let me give you an example. God tells him, I'm going to part the waters of the Jordan River so that you can walk through just like I did for Moses and the Red Sea so that this generation can see as well that I am God and that I am leading you. Now, if Joshua had been an insecure leader, If he had doubted that God might show up, this is at the very beginning of his leadership, by the way. So if he had doubt that God would show up, he probably would have done something like this. All right, God, I'm going to stand at the edge of the Jordan. And as soon as you part the waters, I'm going to tell the people to break camp and then we'll go through. But he did just the opposite. He said, pack up your tents, pack up your bags, stand with me because God is about to do something in front of you that you haven't seen. And so all the people are arrayed along the edge of the Jordan River waiting. And suddenly the water ceases to flow because it begins to stack up way upriver. And the people are able to walk through on dry ground. And that day, because they saw it with their own eyes, their trust in God and their, their willingness to follow Joshua was compounded, it grew exponentially. However, Joshua recognized that these people, just like their parents, are a forgetful people. They would have a tendency the moment they got into the land to forget what he had done, the moment that they're faced with these giants. And so he does something to remind them of God's faithfulness. He has one representative from each tribe go back into the river once everybody's crossed over and to grab a large stone from the center of the river. And they carry these stones to the place that they camped for the night. And there they built what's called an Ebenezer or an altar of remembrance. It was a tangible reminder of God's faithfulness so that years later, generations later, when the kids would see this stack of rocks and like, well, what's that there for? Let me tell you the story of the time that God, part of the waters and brought us in here. Let me tell you about the time that God was faithful to provide this land in which we live. And so they stacked rocks. Another example of Joseph's willingness to look foolish. The very first city they come to that God says, it's time for you to take this place is a place called Jericho. Now, Joshua had been a military commander. He had led the people in some military campaigns before. He knew proper military etiquette. But here was God's game plan for them to take this city. It wasn't a war of attrition. He said, have the people stand up, line up, and march around the city. That's it. Just walk around the city one time. And then when you get back, camp out. Next morning, get up, have the people line up, and march around again. You guys get it. I'm not going to do that again, right? (laughs) For six days, Joshua tells the people, stand up walk around the city one time, come back to the camp. Now I bet that the people in Israel are going, what is going on? He has flipped his lid. This is his big plan. I think we need to reelect somebody else to lead us because this is not a solid game plan. And then on that seventh day, God said, okay, now have the people line up. And this time, rather than one time around, I want you to march around seven times. And as you do so, I want you to have the priests carrying their ram's horns, their shofars with them. And as you walk around, prepare yourself. Because when you get around that seventh time, I want the priests to blow their ram's horns. And I want the people, when they hear the horns, to shout with all of their might. And then you will see me show up. So we're going to try this. And hopefully the same outcome will not take place here. I'm going to blow this thing. I'm not very good at it, so give me some grace. And I want you guys to yell. You ready? All right, here we go. And as they blew their horns, and as the people shouted, the ground began to shake. And the walls of that impenetrable town began to crumble. And that day God delivered the the city of Jericho into their hands. And he got the glory, not Joshua, not the people. And in the next five years, some 31 kings and their nations and their armies would be overrun by the Israelites because God fought for them and ultimately gave them the land that he promised to give them. Now, I'm not going to sit here, though, and tell you that everything went smoothly, that it went perfectly, because, for one, there was some disobedience along the way. When they took Jericho, God had said specifically to Joshua, tell the people not to take any of the the spoils of war for themselves. And yet one guy, when he was in the city, ransacking it, found a a load of silver and gold, and he, he ended up coveting it as anybody might. And he wound it up in his cloak and then he hid it in his tent that night. And the next time they went to battle, the Israelites were routed. And it turns out when they found out that because of this man's sin, not only did the people suffer, but he and his family suffered. Another time, Joshua misled the people because he... He wasn't immune from making decisions based upon his own wisdom and his own flesh. So a group of people show up. They look like they've been traveling for months. Their their saddles are all worn out. The food, the bread in their saddlebags is hard as a rock. Looks like they have been traveling from thousands of miles away. And they say, we have heard about the people of Israel and we want to make a treaty with you. And Joshua goes, well, you guys are probably from really far away, so sure, why not? And he makes a treaty with them, not realizing that these people actually lived within the border of Canaan and had intentionally made themselves look like they'd traveled a far distance so that they would make a treaty. And Joshua, without seeking God's approval, makes a treaty. And in the coming years, particularly after Joshua is no longer leading and a new generation is wound up, these people would end up being a thorn in the side of Israel because they would, this, the land was not clear of pagan influence and the gods that they worshipped ultimately began to percolate into Israel's worship as well. We're going to look at that next week when we look at the book of Judges. And yet, by and large, in the 50 years of Joshua's leadership, because he led the people for some 50 years, Five of them were taking the land. The next 45 were simply residing within the land. He and the people saw God's faithfulness time and time and time again. Saw God show up in ways that they couldn't explain apart from him. And so as we come to the end of Joshua, because we're going to skip all the way back to, to chapter 24, so hopefully you're still there. Go ahead and turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. At the end of his life, Now at this point, he's something like 110 years old. He's feeling those years and he knows he doesn't have long. And so he asks for the people to gather together and he wants to to talk to them one last time. And what does Joshua do? He remembers that the people are a forgetful people and he's not going to be around to remind them. So he takes the time in his last conversation with them to remind them of God's goodness and to challenge them to be faithful to the God that has been so faithful to them. He begins by reminding them of how God called out Abraham when he was just a kid living in Canaan and said, follow me where I lead and I will take you and and make you into a great nation. He reminded them of the way that he had led them out of slavery, led them through the wilderness, led them into the promised land and provided this place for them that they're living And he says in verse 13, he's speaking the words that God is telling him to speak. So he's kind of speaking for God. He says, I gave you the land in which you did not toil and cities you didn't build. And you live in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And now he lays before the people a decision. Verse 14. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods that your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Apparently, they still held on to some of those idols. They still had them in this tent. Get rid of them. But, verse 15, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the God who brought you out of slavery and brought you into the land? Or are you going to serve the the so-called idols that you've held on to? Are you going to serve the gods of the land that you have dispossessed, gods that were not powerful enough to protect their people as your God has brought you in here? Choose who you will serve. And then Joshua votes with his own body and he says, As for me and my household, we choose to serve the Lord. What I find so interesting is that he recognized the need to remind the people because we are a forgetful people. When we're in the midst of something, it is real easy for us to cry out, God, I need you to show up in this way. But when he does, when he actually shows up... We, we, we may celebrate it, we may recognize it, but then we quickly forget about it until the, nec- you know, the next time something comes up that we don't feel prepared for. Then all of a sudden we feel insecure again and, and the needs of the moment eclipse the confidence in our God that we already had. And sometimes we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And so this morning we're going to do that in two ways. We're going to take one from the Old Testament we're going to take one from the New Testament. Under your seats and I appreciate nobody throwing them this morning, were these rocks. Go ahead and grab that. And in each row, there's only one per row, so you guys are going to get to share. They're these silver pens. Up top, I think that they left some pens and rocks, hopefully. If not, there's some more down here. Oh, you took all of them? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I totally... We'll bring some pens to you. They're coming. You got these rocks. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Here's what we're going to do with them. I want you to... Spend a couple of minutes just going, God, how have I seen you be faithful to me? In what ways have I seen tangibly you be faithful? And then I want you to try to pull that down to one word that may kind of encapsulate that. Maybe it's a person's name. Maybe it's something he's done. Maybe it's something he's helped you overcome. And you just write the name of that down there. You may have a couple of words or a few things that you want to remember on this rock. And during this song, I want you to just kind of pass the pen and spend some time writing a memorial rock, a memorial stone of God's faithfulness. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to take communion. I'm going to invite the Rapolis to come up here. Heather, Jimmy, would you guys come up here? We're going to take communion together because this is a tangible reminder that Jesus gave to his disciples to say you can remember what I have done on the cross for you. And so during this song as you're writing your words down when you're ready, whenever you feel prepared. I'm going to invite you to come forward along one of these two aisles and you're going to lay your stone down at the foot of a cross. We're going to build an altar of remembrance. You're going to lay your stone down at the foot of the cross. And then you're going to come over and get your communion elements and go back and sit down. And then once everybody has that, we'll spend some time taking communion together. All right? So Father, would you bring to mind the tangible ways that you have been faithful to us? Would you remind us, a naturally forgetful people, of your faithfulness in the past so that as we face the uncertainty of the future, we can rest in you? We give you this time, Jesus, in your name. Amen.